0: Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today.
1: Destroying that. Yes, we need housing. I'd argue we shouldn't be building housing on critically endangered ecosystems, and that are going to affect uh, you know, those communities.
0: ACT Independent Senator David Pocock is just one of the people concerned about a lakeside defence housing development in northern Canberra. In a two-part series, we investigate just what is going on. Also on the program...
2: A whole bunch of people who are sort of having an aha moment if you know what i mean they're saying oh yeah she is good almost saying without saying i just assumed that somebody that looked like that and sounded like that couldn't possibly have talent and yet they do
0: swifties are massing in sydney for the eras tour this week creating one of the biggest fandoms australia has ever seen how did it get this popular and what is causing this taylor frenzy stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on the wire But first, Julian Assange's legal team has announced its final appeal in a bid to prevent his extradition from the UK to the US on charges of espionage. His legal team and broader support network have grave fears about the consequences to his health if he ends up in a US prison. Many are also waiting to see what kind of precedent this case case sets for laws surrounding freedom of the press. Georgia Hayway asked Holly Cullen, adjunct professor of law at the University of Western Australia, just what are the charges facing Assange and how it might play out?
3: He's been charged by the US with 17 counts of computer misuse and espionage. The maximum sentence for all of those charges put together would be 175 years, so effectively a life sentence. So it's a very serious charge and very serious consequences. So that's the main reason why he's trying to avoid this extradition. The argument his legal team is making is that he should not have been charged with these offences because he's not, he's not the leaker himself. He is simply a publisher and therefore is exercising his rights to freedom of expression, rights that are protected both in UK and US law.
4: And the U.S. government, of course, claims the documents risked its national security. Is this the main argument for bringing him to the U.S.?
3: Certainly they say that these charges are based on the impact of the leak. That is disputed by Assange's legal team. It is also disputed by other journalists, including journalists that worked with WikiLeaks back in the 2010s.
4: And... Assange's main legal arguments in this case that's coming up is that his well, perhaps one of them, is that the classified documents were exercises of his right to freedom of expression under the European Convention on Human Rights. How does this legal argument stand up in terms of preventing his extradition?
3: I think that's probably going to be a one of the harder arguments for him to win on because the European Court of Human Rights, which is the main international body that enforces the convention, has never um, prevented an extradition on that basis. They've usually prevented it either because the person risked being subjected to the death penalty or because their... they would be at risk of torture or other inhumane and cruel uh, treatment or punishment, or that they couldn't get a fair trial because there would be evidence based on torture. So the practice of the European Court is to set a very high bar to say no to an extradition, particularly to a country that is democratic and has a strong rule of law. So I think that is based on previous case law his weakest argument. I think the stronger arguments are the uh, arguments around the treatment he is likely to receive uh, as somebody charged with espionage in the U.S., that he would be sent to a supermax security prison and uh, possibly subject to special administrative measures. The U.S. government has given diplomatic assurances to the United Kingdom that it would not exercise some of these measures that it would consider allowing Assange to serve any sentence that's imposed in Australia rather than in the US. But there's a lot of dispute about the value of those assurances. Recently, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, Dr. Alice Edwards, has said that these assurances do not remove the risk of torture or equivalent treatment.
4: Do you think the argument of whether or not Julian Assange is a journalist important to this kind of rhetoric and and public debate about this issue, or in fact the legal aspects of this case in terms of freedom of press?
3: There are two levels. On on the one hand, there's a strong argument that his lawyers are making that this kind that that this charge was not foreseeable, because in the past. Although the U.S. has, and the U.K. for that matter, have charged people who have leaked national security information, they have never charged a publisher of that, somebody who did not ac- directly access the information but just published it after a leaker gave it to them. So on that level, the status of him and WikiLeaks as practitioners of journalism and as publishers is significant. However, you know, it's worth remembering that the European Convention says that everyone has the right to freedom of expression. There is no precondition that you have to establish that you're a journalist. So in that context, it's not legally important that he's a journalist, but it is politically important for the context in terms of saying that this is a very important issue of freedom of expression and particularly the concern that a lot of people have that this is a bad precedent, that it would enable the US and other governments to pursue journalists merely for publishing material in a way that they have not done so in the past.
0: Georgia Hayway there with Holly Cullen, adjunct professor of law at the University of Western Australia.
3: Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well.
0: Defence Housing Australia is a federal department set up to provide housing for defence personnel. As it has to be self-funding, defence lands are being used as development opportunities for retail sales of land around the country. One such area is the Lawson grasslands in the northern suburbs of Canberra, where there are concerns for endangered species in an area slated for housing development and sale. The Department of Environment has already done an EIS and is looking to do another for this sensitive site, but the plans for the site appear to have changed. Hedda Murray has this story. In the leafy back blocks of Canberra, a battle rages over a
5: patch of critically endangered natural temperate grasslands and box gum woodland, locally referred to as Lawson North grasslands. It's an environmental battle of small yet epic proportions. The Commonwealth Government... Through Defence Housing Australia, also known as DHA, wants to build houses on this endangered ecosystem. This has met with strong and sustained resistance from the community. David Pocock, independent senator for the ACT, is worried.
1: I have huge concerns. You look at temperate grasslands. There's 0.5% of it left in a good condition nationwide. We've lost 99.5% of of temperate grasslands. Um, why are we contemplating destroying that? Yes, we need housing. I'd argue we shouldn't be building housing on critically endangered ecosystems and that are going to affect uh, yeah, those communities.
5: Lawson is a relatively new suburb in a local town centre of Canberra called Belconnen. The northern side of the suburb is where the natural temperate grasslands are. Lawson sits on the shores of Lake Gininderra. It's a lake not as well known as Lake Burley Griffin, but nonetheless, it's beautiful, with Lake Ginninderra on one side and the homes of the current Lawson residents on the other. The 145 hectares of grasslands is a relatively untouched and rare native ecosystem, but you wouldn't know it just by looking at it. Some may mistake the grasslands for a sheep paddock with a stand of gum trees. But looks can be deceiving. Elle Lawless, Executive Director of the Conservation Council ACT Region, explains.
6: So natural temperate grasslands and box gum grassy woodlands are critically endangered. So both of these ecosystems are listed under our federal environment law, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, as critically endangered, which is the highest level you can be And so that means that they're incredibly rare, incredibly precious,
5: and once they're gone, they are gone forever. The proposal was nothing if not controversial. So in late 2022, Tanya Plibersek, Federal Environment Minister, required an environmental impact statement to be prepared by DHA before determining the fate of these grasslands. As many species at Lawson North are already listed as critically endangered, it's not clear why the Minister has chosen this approach, rather than simply stopping the development from progressing at all. I asked Senator Pocock why he thinks Minister Plibersek opted to go down this route.
1: Our current environmental laws are clearly broken Mm -hmm. and they're not working. You look at something like Lawson uh, grasslands, it's, I guess, it's a, a microcosm of what's happening across, across environmental approvals in Australia. And I think it's really important that the community keeps advocating, but as part of that, demands stronger environmental laws. But not just that, demands an EPA, an Environmental Protection Agency, that can make these decisions at arm's length from
5: government. Many endangered and threatened species call Lawson Grasslands their home: the golden sun moth, the striped legless lizard, the Perunga grasshopper. There are hundreds of native plants and animal species living at Lawson North Grasslands. As Lawson is in the ACT, I asked Rebecca Vassarotti, ACT Minister for the Environment, why she thinks Tanya Plibersek did not put a stop to DHA's proposal from the very start.
7: Yeah so look here in the ACT we are really privileged to be the stewards of some of the most intact grassy woodlands um, in Australia and in fact in the world and we know that they are really important ecosystems and they're really important habitat for a number of threatened species including um, legless lizards which um, are you know are reliant on this habitat and so we know that this is a species that's prominent in, um, in the Lawson grassland so we do see the loss of this habitat as a really significant threat, um, and we're really concerned about continuing to see the loss of habitat for some of our really important threatened species. And so that's why we've been, you know, quite concerned about this particular development. It's interesting, here, it's here in the ACT, but because it is a national capital land, we don't have any control of that as, as an ACT um, entity.
0: Rebecca Vassarotti, ACT Minister for the Environment, Heritage and and sustainable building and ending part one of this in-depth investigation by Hedamari. Stay tuned tomorrow for the wire for the conclusion to the story. Music the Albanese government is set to have a major overhaul of the Navy's combat fleet was announced on Tuesday that the Navy will double the existing number of warships but also acquire six new large optionally crewed surface vessels that can be operated remotely during wartime. As this is reportedly costing $65 billion, in a cost-of-living crisis, what does this mean for ordinary Australians and is it necessary? James Montemayor has the story.
8: Whether or not we have enough warships isn't something you necessarily think about when it comes to voting or just living in Australia in general, but with the recent flare-ups in the Middle East, the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea has gotten decision-makers in Canberra very nervous. With the announcement of doubling the naval fleet by the Albanese government, I asked the people on the streets of Sydney on what they think of national defence. Do you think about national defence as an election promise? I mean, I worry about the amount of money they're spending on national defence. Uh, yeah, I was
6: following when they uh, pledged to spend like half a trillion dollars nearly on nuclear-powered
8: submarines last year. Do you think national defence is important to think about when it comes to elections and voting? I would say so. Um, like, and why is that? Uh, I feel like it's it's important to kind of just like think about like, I guess the direction that the, the, uh, like the country's, like, heading. Do you think about national defence when it comes to elections?
7: Um, no. I, don't, um, I haven't really done a lot of research before voting. I go based off what people around me are voting.
8: Professor of human security Peter Lane says that world events have gotten leaders to wake up.
9: But in the last few years, they've realised that the future may not be like the past, and they need to be, and they, and they need to be thinking about what might happen in the future, rather than sort of historically. So, people have woken up, or the, the, or governments around the world have woken up. Um, it was particularly caused by the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, and of course, that's been doubled down or multiplied uh, by the war, the war in Gaza, uh, now by the Houthis. As you say, uh, China is still causing a lot of tension in Northeast Asia and the South China Sea as well. So there's a whole lot of compounding factors there that have gradually convinced people that the next 20 years may not be like the last 20 years. and the next 20 years could be quite violent and not as peaceful as the last 20 years.
8: Tech moves very fast. Will, by the time we get them, will they be up to date?
9: Uh, It's an excellent question. And uh, to be honest, no one's particularly sure uh, because, uh, obviously, say, China... It is is obviously a vast country. It has enormous uh, resources in, in money and in people. So they're building large numbers of, of, uh, of a very good military military hardware. A small country like Australia can't can't compete with that really. So So the government's making an assumption that we, that we'll have a collective defense. That is um, the various de, de, de democracies of our region will all get together. And collectively, we'll be able to defend ourselves. Um, and it's not so much defend ourselves, but deter conflict starting, so that we'll be strong enough, so that no one will, in fact, will in fact start a, a conflict.
8: We are living in a cost of living crisis. Do we need more warships?
9: Yeah, it's a complicated one. This one. There's, a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion about this for generations. The, the military is not. A productive organisation in that civilian sense, and by taking people away who joined the the the, the military, that's um, taking people away from the productive side of the of the of the economy as well. So that that's the sort of that's the sort of downside of it. Um, and and in, in Australia, the the defence force consumes about nine percent of the federal budget. So it's it, it's it's uh, quite a significant amount. On the other hand. And, in fact, going back to our discussion there about the naval shipbuilding, the government feels that with the naval shipbuilding and announcing this, uh, we've spent a large proportion of money in Australia and so produce, they say, about 4,000 direct jobs and probably about 20,000 indirect jobs out of that. So it's an employment generation, if you like. Um, and the argument for that is also that this is not just jobs if you like that 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 are unskilled jobs most of these are very skilled jobs so they will require um, established...
8: looking at the world and where it's heading how should ordinary Aussies analyze security
9: concerns so there's not much between the two parties when we when we look take look at the look at the big picture um, um, perhaps one of, one, of, one, of, one of the important things is that uh, what parties or what organizations can can uh, keep Australia as a cohesive country? Now you know a classic example, of course, is the Americans that are enormously polarised and have and have a bunch of problems there. But certainly, uh, the, just uh, certainly for the five years before the Russians attacked the Ukraine, they put a lot of effort into dis- into disinformation to try and fragment the uh, Ukraine into various feuding social groups. And a country that is that is divided will will uh, naturally have have the trouble fighting a war.
0: Dr Peter Layton, Professor of Development and Human Security from Griffith University, ending that report from James Montemayor. The Taylor Swift effect is undeniable. It's dominating modern media from news coverage to TikTok trends, and it feels like something we just can't escape. With Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour arriving in Australia this week, it has certainly become the main topic of conversation. But how did it become this large? It feels as if this Taylor frenzy has only been born within the past six months. Megan Grew asked Dr Liz Jaffray, lecturer in communications, music and sound at UTS, what is the cause of the drive behind Australia's Taylor fanatics?
2: Yeah, well, look, definitely in Australia, it's got to do with the concert, you know, and she's literally sold out stadiums in a way that no one else has done that before. Uh, which is a big deal in itself. You know, the the crowds that she was playing to in Melbourne were reportedly the biggest ones she'd ever played. Uh, but also remember that that's come on the back of, you know, history-making Grammy wins. So she won the, the um, album of the year for the fourth time in a row and that's never happened before. So that's why she's so big. I mean, that's why she's getting a lot of media attention because she's literally the most accomplished artist according to that metric. So it's really important that we acknowledge that. Um, And also I think it's an important moment because we've got an artist who perhaps we don't, you know, we've got a female artist, a relatively young artist doing all these things. You know, we're talking about somebody who's been making music still not for 20 years yet. It's pretty remarkable what she's achieved in the amount of time that she's achieved it. I think that's why there's so much
5: focus.
6: In terms of comparing her to other pop singers alike, say perhaps Beyonce, specifically why would it be Taylor Swift that's making a fandom this large? Because I don't think I've seen it this crazy in Australia before.
2: Yeah, look, I think, I mean, certainly people are comparing it to things like when the Beatles toured, you know, and there were stories about, you know, um, streets being shut down and all that kind of stuff. Um, But, look, I think there's also some industrial things. So as great as she is, and she is genuinely great, she's genuinely brilliant and we haven't seen somebody like her before, she's also won a number of genetic and privileged lotteries, if you want to put it that way. So if you compare her to someone like Beyonce, Unfortunately, we're, we're still in a society where being a white artist gives you an advantage. I'm sorry to say, but that's the truth of the matter. And someone like Beyonce, as opposed to Taylor Swift, is a really clear example of that. There are certain things. So it's really important that we think about that. There's also issues around gender, of course, and class. So someone like Taylor, you know, is a cis het woman, not to put too fine a point on it. She's white, she's relatively thin, she's relatively attractive. You could say she's the all
6: American girl. Is that what we're going for? The all American look?
2: Well, yeah, except remembering too that all American really means a particular type of white and blonde and straight. And it's no it's no fault of her own. It's just the genetic lottery. Which on the other side of things does mean that she cops a lot of flack too. That's the other thing I guess and the reason why she's getting a lot of attention is, you know, you might notice that there's a whole bunch of people who are sort of having an aha moment, if you know what I mean. They're saying, oh yeah, she is good. Almost saying without saying, I just assumed that somebody that looked like that and sounded like that couldn't possibly have talent and yet they do. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So it's not to say that they're, even though she's got privilege in some ways, it doesn't mean that she's also not up against it in others. And we can consider both of those things at once. We wouldn't be fair to the fans if we said that they're only interested in that. There's more, more to it than that. Do
6: you think that in any way it could be a follow-on from the frenzy of women's representation, specifically in Australian media um, and the major success that we've seen in that? Do you think it might be more of a bandwagon thing or perhaps is it just that feel-good nature of, I guess, women in the spotlight so we can see the success over the past year of the Matildas, of Barbie, things yeah. like that?
2: Well, you know what, Megan, it, I, I mean, that would be nice, but you know what I also think it is? I think it's hopefully more women actually in the media too. Now, and this is, I guess, where we do hit a bit of a sweet spot because Taylor's only in her mid-30s, but because of how long she's been making music, a lot of people who are now in positions of sort of mid-power grew up with her. Mm -hmm. So it is them. You don't have to convince them that she's a good thing because they know about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't in the same way that you don't need to convince, I don't know, someone on AM radio who's aiming at a boomer audience that Paul McCartney is important. They know because they grew up with Paul McCartney. They get it. Yeah. I'd say the same thing's happening with Taylor Swift. A lot of those, a lot of the media frenzy is coming from people in the media who did also grow up with her. Who get it, you know, in that way.
6: And with this uh, current trajectory, do you think that this is something that can only grow exponentially or will it die down? And what do you see for the future of this Taylor Swift fandom?
2: It's really hard to know, isn't it? I mean, look, certainly when she's not in the country anymore, things will change a bit, you know. We, that always happens, you know. It's like football season. It's not that people forget, love it, forget to love football. It's just when the season's over... look at something else for a little while, but it doesn't mean you don't still love football. You're just doing something else. I mean, it's so great to see so many people interested in music. I just want that ball to keep rolling, though. You know, I'd hate people and the media and governments and all those people that have put money and attention into Taylor Swift to say, right, that's music done now. Mm It would be great to go the other way and say, geez, if we could do that for that girl, imagine what we could do for people that are here all the time who you can get a ticket to for $25 and not, you know, 12 months in advance if you're lucky. So that's what I would love to see happen is for the Taylor Swift effect to expand, you know, possibilities for music and in particular for homegrown music. I think that would be fantastic.
0: Dr Liz Jaffray, lecturer in communications, music and sound at UTS, speaking there with Megan Grew. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company.